Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for the gift of your word. We pray that you would just be honored now as we turn our attention to it and that you would speak to us. And that we would hear what you want to say, that we would receive it, that we would grow, and that we would become more like you. And we just ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the book of Galatians, you know, this year on Wednesday nights, we're marching our way through the epistles, uh, the letters that were written specifically to the church. And so we started in Romans, then we had First and Second Corinthians, and we find ourselves in Galatians. Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, it's probably written right about the time he wrote First and Second Corinthians. And so some of the themes are kind of similar, some of just the style of where he's coming from is similar. But just a couple things as we're getting into it, uh, you know, Galatia is a region. It's kind of like saying to the churches in the Ohio River Valley. Um, and so if you go back into the book of Acts, you can read on Paul's first missionary journey where he started churches in Iconium and Lystra and Derby. These are the churches in Galatia. And so uh, he's writing to a handful of churches. But what had happened was Paul, on his missionary journeys, would go to a city, plant a church, move to the next city, plant a church, move to the next city, plant a church. And so these, there were pastors being raised up to sort of oversee, but the churches wound up being susceptible to false teaching and false doctrine coming in. And specifically what was happening with the churches in the Galatian area is these people are coming in who church history calls Judaizers. These are people from the church in Jerusalem who came and they said, hey, listen, salvation by faith is great. It's great if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose for your sins and wants to give you eternal life. That's a great start. But if you really want God to love you, you need to keep all of the Old Testament law. So if you're a man, you need to be circumcised. If you're anybody, you need to keep the Old Testament law. If you're, you need to go to the synagogue on Saturdays. And there's this tension that happens all of a sudden when you say, well, wait a second. I thought when Paul was here, he said, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're forgiven for your sins. Well, yeah, he did mostly. And that's mostly true. But you just need to keep these other things too. And so the book of Galatians is written to address false teaching and to correct an error that's creeping into the church. And it's an error that's incredibly relevant and has been relevant for all of church history. And that is that there's a point in time at which we accept that Jesus died for our sins. And then there's a point at which we think, maybe that just wasn't quite enough. Maybe we should add a little more to it. Maybe there's something else we can do. Maybe there's just one more thing that will, you know, maybe God loves us, but if we do the right thing, he'll really like us. And we can kind of, you know, we can earn favor or earn points or earn just kind of the bonus, right? Um, gets to sort of, you know, level two, Christianity. And so Galatians is written to correct that. And so Galatians is really, it's broken into basically three chunks, which works well because we're going to do it in three weeks. So chapters one and two, Paul's addressing the uniformity of the church's stance on grace. He says, listen, every disciple who's ever been with Jesus agrees that you're saved by grace, by, by God's gift to you and that there's nothing you can do about it. I was taught that by Jesus in the wilderness. Peter and all the other disciples were taught that during Jesus' earthly ministry. Here's my testimony. Here's the story of how I went back and verified with them that we were both sharing the same message. And so Paul says, okay, point one is Grace is not something that I made up. It's something that Jesus Christ gave to the church. The idea of grace is not something that originated with Paul. It's not that Paul liked it and Peter and James didn't. It's that the Lord said, this is truth. And so chapters one and two is Paul basically explaining how the church received the message of grace, all right? 
Chapters 3 and 4, where we'll be tonight, is really the doctrine of grace. And the idea of what is grace and how do we know that we have grace. And then chapters 5 and 6 are the application. How do you walk in grace? What does that look like? So we find ourselves uh, tonight in chapter 3, verse 1. But again, we said it last week, I'll say it again. What we're going to cover tonight is not going to be a sufficient explanation of Galatians 3 and 4, right? You, you can't possibly unpack the two chapters in 40 minutes. It just doesn't work. So what we're doing is we're going through it with the expectation that you are going to be going through the Word on your own time, right? What happens in church needs to be a reflection of what's happening in your own life privately, right? The person you are at church should not be the person you put on to go to church. It should be the actual reflection of who you are becoming through what Jesus Christ is doing in your life on a day-to-day basis. So we find ourselves, chapter 3, verse 1, really we're going we're gonna to back up chapter 2, verse 21. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Paul's continuing this thought of grace is what carries us, and if we are going to say that something else gets added to that, then really Jesus' death on the cross was a waste. If it wasn't, suffi- if it wasn't sufficient, to go, then it was really a waste, it was a cruel joke, it was, it was really, there was nothing good about it. It was so, uh, the, the cross was such a sacrifice, it was so painful, it was so tremendously awful, that if there was any other way, when Jesus, if, when Jesus was in the garden saying, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, if that cup didn't pass from him and there was another way, then his death was a waste. And so to say, well, you need to follow, you need to accept Jesus Christ and do this is really not only dangerous theologically, it's also offensive to Jesus Christ. It's saying, hey, you know, we don't really need you. So chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus was cl- Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? And this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul's going to make tonight several arguments. Just kind of boom, 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 boom. Um, Some people say it's five, some people say it's six, you could say it's five in a word picture, whatever. A handful. That works for me, right? Um, so he's kind of making a, he opens up really with a bit of a personal argument. He says, hey guys, tell me something. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You're already a church. You're already Christians. And you would all agree with me on that. So tell me something. When you got saved, before these Judaizers came into the church and started telling you what you all had to do, had you gotten saved by what you were doing? And the answer is an obvious no, because these people were pagans. They were walking in idolatry and immorality, right? And so Paul says, guys, oh, foolish Galatians. Um, I think it's the, the Phillips translation of the New Testament. It says, my beloved idiots. Uh, guys, guys, do you understand what's happening here? He says, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And think about that as a question. Because whenever we add legalism, we're t- usually talking about cleaning up the smallest fraction of a percentage of our morality, right? We're talking about externals and surface things. 
When we, when we talk about the work God has done for us, we're talking about a salvation of your soul. We're talking about the fact that you deserved to be punished in hell, to be eternally separated and cut off from God, and he reached down and pulled you from that and instead gave you the offer of eternal life. So if he did that, which is a much greater reach than any of us will ever appreciate, to what extent do we think, well, if I change my vocabulary or if I uh, you know, dress appropriately for Sunday, whatever that even means, um, God will like me more. Right? Understand that the, the littleness of what we can offer is offensive. Right? Think, if you will, of a burning building. And you've got, your, you know, it's your heroic movie scene, right? There's a person trapped in the building. The guy runs in, chucks the person out of the window right as the building crashes down. And we all think that the, you know, if you're a girl, the cute guy, if you're a dude, the buff guy, uh, just died. He got crushed under the building. And then he kind of staggers out. And you're like, oh my gosh, not only did he save the person, but he also is still alive. This is such a great hero story. And, and the person who he rescued... You know, all the reporters are like, well, sir, how did you do it? Were you afraid when you ran into the building to save the person? And the person who gets rescued says, excuse me, I contributed too. After he pulled me out of the fire, I cleaned the dirt out from under my fingernails. <laughs> like, I had, I had smoke debris under that fingernail, and I cleaned it out. Can I get a little bit of credit here? That's, that would be, it's laughable because it's stupid. When you take and try and add morality to salvation, it's stupid. There's nothing you can add, right? So Paul says, all right, does he, having begun in the Spirit, do you think you're going to be made perfect by the flesh? So he's using a personal argument, saying, guys, you've already experienced salvation. What, what do you think you're going to accomplish by saying, well, now if we just get circumcised and go to synagogue and keep all the Old Testament rules, now we'll go from being saved to being really saved. You're already saved. You've experienced the grace of God personally. In verse 6, he goes on, he says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are under the... For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Verse 11. Did I just say that? Verse 11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul here, he goes to make a biblical argument. And this is a little bit of a big idea, so it's a little hard to track sometimes, but it's incredibly important. So what he's referencing here is in Genesis chapter 15. All right? So if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, we have the story, we're getting the story of Abraham. And God appears to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make your descendants like the sands of the seashore. I'm going to bless you, and in your seed, in your descendant, really, the nation of the earth will be blessed. All right? He makes a messianic promise. Hey, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to multiply you, and more or less, Jesus Christ is going to come from your line. 
And in Genesis chapter 15, written by Moses, the same man who would eventually write down the Old Testament law, it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now pay attention to this because the Judaizers who were coming into the churches in Galatia said, hey, Jesus Christ is a great start. Now you have to just keep a bunch of rules. Specifically, you need to keep the Old Testament law so that you can be a good Jewish Christian. And Paul was making a point that who, who would be considered the greatest Jew of all time? Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish people, right? Everyone else is descended from him. So sort of by definition, especially in a Jewish mindset, Abraham would be the greatest Jew who ever lived. And Paul says, okay, how does the scripture describe Abraham's righteousness? In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham is made righteous when he believes. It doesn't say Abraham is made righteous when he does something. It doesn't say Abraham is made righteous when he, you know, when he gets circumcised. That'll happen later. The law at this point hasn't even been given. Abraham believes God, and in that, and in that receiving of the promise of God, Abraham is considered righteous. And that's, that's all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. Okay, this is part of why as a church, we are so emphatic that the entire word of God matters. You can't just say, well, we're just New Testament Christians. We just want to, you know, we just want to read, we're just red letter Christians. No, we want to unhitch the, you know, we want to unhitch the gospel from the Old Testament. You can't do it. The whole thing is pointing to Jesus Christ. And you cannot understand salvation by grace if you don't understand the fact that God appeared to Abraham. That Abraham received the promise of God. And that in receiving the promise, he was made righteous. So Paul says, okay, if so, the Judaizers are coming in and saying, you need to be like Abraham. And your response should be, you're right. Abraham, just like Abraham, I want to be made righteous by believing in the promises of God. And specifically as Christians, by believing that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived as a man who was fully man and fully God, lived a perfect life, died on a cross as the punishment for our sins, and rose again to give us eternal life. So you're right. I am, I do want to be just like Abraham. I'm going to believe God and let God credit that as righteousness. I'm, going, I'm not going to make myself righteous. I'm going to receive the righteousness of God. Right? It's accounted to him as righteousness. Righteousness is deposited in Abraham's account. So God's righteousness is placed on Abraham when Abraham believes. God's righteousness is placed on us when we believe in Jesus Christ. And so this is where Paul's going. He says, and he quotes other scriptures in the Old Testament. He says, no one's justified by the law in the sight of God, for the just shall live by faith. That's a quote from the book of Habakkuk. In chapter 10, in verse 10, he quotes again, and it says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law. He says, if you want to be like a Judaizer, you need to understand the law brings a curse with it. The law specifically says, if you don't keep the whole thing, you're under a curse. And that's a lot of pressure because nobody can keep the whole law. So Paul says, listen, in Genesis, Abraham receives righteousness by faith. Habakkuk says, the just will live by faith, not by their works. 
and you are cursed if you are going to try and keep the law and you're going to fail at any point. So unless you can keep the whole thing perfectly, you better know that the law is going to curse you if you try and walk in legalism. If you try and walk in this idea of, well, Jesus was a really good start, but I just need to add something to it. No, no, no. If you do that, you are, you are setting yourself up to be judged on the standard of, did you keep every rule perfectly? And that's a standard that I don't want to, I don't want to be under, right? When I get to heaven, I really don't want the Lord to say, now, Nate, February 23rd, 2017, you were driving in your car. You know what happened. I'll be like, I have no idea what happened. He'll be like, yes, you do. Let's roll the tape, shall we? Do you want God? I don't want God to do that, right? I don't know what happened in February, whatever day it was. But I'm sure I sinned that day. But other than that, I don't know what happened. But do you want God to keep a list and weigh at you against, did you keep everything in the law? I don't. I want God's righteousness credited to me. And so what do I need to do? I need to believe that Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, has paid the sufficient wage. He has redeemed me, and there's nothing else I can do to add to it. And so Paul says, listen, this is so that the blessing of Abraham, verse 16, might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. This is bigger because Abraham believed and it was counted for righteousness. Christianity is, but righteousness through God is now bigger than just an ethnic group of people, right? It's no longer about, are you circumcised? Are you genealogically connected to Abraham? Are you descended through Abraham? Are you part of his line? Are you, are you, you, know, are you part of the tradition? It's, hey, I'm part of the tradition of I believed God. And so now, because anybody can do that, we can all be a part of the family of Christ. So, a biblical argument. Uh, verse 15. He says, Brethren, 15 through 18, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Okay, so again, we're digging back to another reference in Genesis. So Paul makes a point. He says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it's only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. What's he saying? Okay, guys, let's use an earthly metaphor. I speak in the manner of men. If you have a covenant or a contract, okay, that's a word that we're a little more familiar with. If you have a contract and we sign a contract, a contractual agreement, later circumstances don't change the contract. If I sign a mortgage and I say, I'm going to pay you this amount of money over this many years for this house, and then three years later I lose my job and I'm unemployed, that doesn't change the terms of the contract. I'm still obligated to pay the money, and if I don't, the bank has the legal right to foreclose on my property, right? Later events do not change a confirmed contract. And so Paul's making a legal argument here. He says, okay, go back to the promise of God, and specifically we're going to go back to the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Now this is, a covenant is a little bit different than a contract. 
largely in the sense that it's much more binding. It's much more uh, eternal. It's much harder to break. And what they, in the ancient world, what they would do is basically you take a handful of animals, you would slice them in half, and you'd set them on each side, and you would both, both parties of the contract or the covenant, would walk through between the two animals. And in a sense, what they're saying is, if I break my side of the deal, may God treat me the same way that this animal has just been treated. May God cut me in half. It's kind of pronouncing a curse on themselves if they don't keep the covenant. Well, God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then he tells Abraham, bring some animals. And so Abraham brings the animals. He cuts them in half. He lays them out. And then God says, stay right there. And God walks through. The presence of God goes through by himself. Abraham doesn't walk through. It's a one-way covenant. God says, I'm making the deal here. I'm keeping the deal here. This is not based on what you do. This is not based on your faithfulness. This is based on me being God. This is based on my ability to keep my word. And so God makes a covenant, all right? And it's in that It's in that season that Abraham believes God and it's accounted to him for righteousness. And so Paul says, okay, listen, that happens. The law, the Old Testament law comes 430 years later. After you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, they go down to Egypt, they're in captivity, they come out, we have the Exodus, you have the parting of the Red Sea, you have the wilderness wandering in the desert. That's when the law comes. It's 430 years later. It's a later circumstance it does not change the original covenant. The original covenant stands. And so the idea that you can obtain righteousness by faith still stands. The fact that the law came does not change it. So he's making a legal argument for grace. Okay? The law, if people come in and tell you that, well, you not need to follow the law. No, you don't. It's a later circumstance. You need to believe the Lord and receive his righteousness. But... Paul's anticipating a question that's going to come up. And so he goes on. In verse 19, we're going to read from 19 and verse 25. What purpose then does the law serve? It's a great question. If Paul says, hey, you don't need the law. In fact, the law doesn't change the original covenant. Then the logical question is, so why did we ever get the law in the first place? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So, the law was added because we are sinful people. It was added because of transgressions, Paul says, till the seed should come. The seed singular, that's Jesus Christ. The law was added until Christ comes. So is it against the promises of God? Is it contradictory? Is it something different? No. 
What is it? Therefore, verse 24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. What is the point and purpose of the law? It is to demonstrate conclusively that you and I are sinners, right? To prove that you cannot achieve righteousness by doing the works of the law. You cannot achieve it on your own merit. So it's given to us as a teacher. So it's not therefore against the promises of God. It's perfect. The law is breathed out by God himself. What is wrong with the law? Nothing. What is wrong with the system? We are sinners. That's what's messed up. Right? The problem is not the circumstance. The problem is not that the law is too harsh or that God is too, you know, stingy. The problem is you are a wicked person and I'm a wicked person and therefore we don't keep the law. So the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. The law is like a mirror. All right? You look in a mirror, you can see what the problem is. You can then kind of figure out there's some problems here, right? We need, we, need to, we need to paint the barn. We got to do something here. There, there is work that needs to happen. And so the mirror shows us the problem. The mirror does not clean us up, right? The mirror tells you, go take a shower, like now. The mirror does not give you a shower. And so in the same way, the law is a tutor to point us to Christ. The law is supposed to be in effect until Christ comes. That's why in Matthew 5, Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus came and kept the law perfectly. He's the only one who ever did. He's the only one who ever will. And in keeping it perfectly, he fulfilled it. He finished it out, right? Here's how you obtain righteousness by works. It's, it, here's the law. Okay, Jesus comes and finishes it and says, see, I just demonstrated by my righteousness that I am greater than the law. And so I am f- finishing up the law and the prophets and now I'm bringing back the covenant of faith. And so it's, the laws are tutored to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We don't need the law anymore. Now, we still read the words of the law. We still read the Old Testament because it's all pointing to Christ. If you read the law, if you read through the Bible once a year, you're gonna be reminded quite frequently there's a standard that I don't measure up to. And so you're going to be reminded as a Christian, I need Christ. And so reading the law is incredibly helpful, but don't ever think that you are supposed to live by the law. The law has been fulfilled, right? The law has been completed because what Jesus did is sufficient. So Paul's going to go on again. He's going to make another argument. He's kind of fired up. He's on a roll here. So chapter 3, verse 26, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, verse, chapter 4, verse 1. I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ Jesus. Again, this is an incredible argument that Paul's making, but you kind of got to, we got to hang together. So it's a little bit of a cultural argument that Paul is, is saying here. He says, you're all sons of God through faith. All right, we've been brought in to the family of God through faith, not through our works. Verse 29 says, if you are Christ and you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. So Paul's kind of making a legal cultural argument here. He says, let's talk about heirs. All right, the heir, as long as he's a child, doesn't, isn't any different from any other kid, right? When a rich man has a kid, it doesn't matter if that kid's gonna inherit a billion dollars. He's still a kid, right? And frankly, he might be a little more spoiled and a little more obnoxious to deal with. He's still a kid. He's not the one calling the shots, right? You get a, you know, if whatever, if a, it's a little hard for us because we have a, a democracy, not a monarchy, so it's a little easier to picture. But in a, you know, if you picture, you know, the king dies and his son is five years old, his son is now king. How many shots do you think that king is actually calling, right? Not, not too many, right? There are advisors, there are counselors, there are teachers who are helping him out, but really calling the shots because he's five, right? We don't expect him and we don't want him uh, to be the one in full authority at this point. And so he's saying, listen, when, when you're looking at a group of kids and the way they interact, you can't tell which one has all the money, right? Legally, one of the kids in this lineup might be, have a net worth of a billion dollars, and one of these kids might be this other kid's slave, as far as you know. But right now, they're just, you know, they're playing card, they're whatever you, you play in the ancient world. They're playing, you know, hopscotch, who cares? Um, they're playing. They're having fun. You know, we need, we, need a, we need an extra hitter in baseball. You're in. You know, we just, we're playing. It doesn't matter. Now you get a little older, those kids are going to start to separate, right? You're going to go one way. Somebody else is going to go another way. The heir is not always going to go to the same school as the kids, as the other kids. Why? Because he's the heir. Now, understand this. He says, all right, when we were children, we were in bondage. We were all on an equal playing field. None of us were in control. None of us were calling the shots. None of us had any authority or any say in anything, right? And if you were to look in on the situation, you couldn't tell which one's a son of God, which one's a son of the slave, who's in bondage, who's in freedom. We were all just kind of, you know, stuck in the same boat together. But God has sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Again, that's what Christ did. He fulfilled it. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, this is important. In the Roman world, everybody got adopted. All right, we think of it in, in our modern world, you know, there's, a, there's an unfortunate situation. Somebody, a parent isn't able to take care of a child. Someone else adopts the child. That's not how it worked in the Roman world. In the Roman world, you and your wife make a baby. That baby grows up. You're going to have a ceremony and say, I adopt this child as my own. I'm proud of who this child is becoming. I am willing to let them receive my wealth, receive my prestige, receive my honor. If you look at the line of the Roman Caesars, they very often didn't adopt their own sons. There's not a genealogical line of king, king, you know, king, son, king, son, king, son, king, son in the Roman world. It's this king then adopts his nephew because his son's a loser. And then he adopts his, you know, this guy adopts his cousin or he adopts somebody else. But you would, everyone got adopted. 
And so Paul says, understand this. All right? So, so the father says, all right, this is my child. I'm proud of who they are. I'm going to adopt them. And it's a little weird for us to wrap our heads around, but it's, it's the way it works. He's saying, God says, that is my child because of what Jesus already did. I'm going to adopt them. And so it's no longer about, did you, did you earn your daddy's favor enough that he's going to adopt you? It's, no, no, no. One of the kids already did it. And so all the rest of us get to just say, hi. And he says, hey, I'm adopting you. Right? So we all receive the adoption as sons. And because you're sons, Paul says, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Imagine being 17, knowing that your ceremony is coming up in a year, and hoping, like, I wonder if I'm going to get adopted or not. I wonder if, do I actually get all my dad's money, or do I just get thrown out? It'd be a little bit of a struggle to kind of, you know, a little formal, maybe a little standoff, a little respectful. You know, let's kind of level up here, make sure we're on top of our game. You would never really be comfortable around the man who really, you know, he'd be your father, right? He'd be maybe the man who owns all the money that you hope to own. He's not dad in that sense, right? He's not your buddy. He's not your friend. He's the man you need to impress. And that's a different kind of a role. And Paul says, yeah, but after you're adopted, hey, hey, you got the money. You're set, right? Like, party on, let's do this thing, you know, cut loose and all that jazz. He says, all right, because we've been adopted, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Because of what Christ has done, we have the kind of access with God the Father that we can think of him as our dad. Abba is, is the Hebrew word for basically daddy. It's like the first, you know, Abba. It's the first sound a kid can make. And so it's like, that's my name right there. I am Abba, right? It's, it's, it's dad. And so Paul's making the point. We have not just like, oh, you can come before the great and reverend, exalted creator of the universe and king of all creation. Although that's who the Lord is, right? You can also treat him like a dad, like a kid with a dad. Or if you've got a grandkids, kids with their grandparents, right? There's not a lot of formality when grandkids are around their grandparents, right? There's just not. It just doesn't really exist. It's like there's not this awareness that there's this, you know, you're the patriarch, you, you brought their parent into existence, and so by extension you've now, you know, their existence is owed to you. You may approach slowly. There's really not any of that. Why? Because they're kids and because you're their dad or their granddad. And so Paul's saying that's our relationship with the Lord through what Jesus Christ has already done. How are you going to improve on that? You're going to improve on having a relationship with the Lord like that? By, by what? By doing something? That's, do, you, do you know how offensive and stupid that is? It's not offensive or stupid. It's both. Right? Do you understand how ridiculous it is to, un- to see the depth and the fullness that you've been given and then say, yeah, I think I could just like, we could tweak this puppy just a little bit, right? We, we can improve this model, right? Christianity, like, you know, 1.01, right? We just, we just got to change a couple of things here and I'll be set. No, no, the whole thing's existing for us. The whole, the whole thing is here. It's already been gifted to us. 
So what business do we have adding to it? He goes on. He's going to make another argument. He says, but then indeed, verse 8, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. In my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Verse 17, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Paul here makes a bit of a sentimental argument. He says, guys, look, the Judaizers are coming into the church. They're trying to tell you what you need to do. They're trying to tell you how you need to live your life. Can I point out, please, that I have lived with you also? That I have been with you? That I know you guys in a personal way? I came to you, he says, because of physical infirmity. Some people think that uh, Galatia is, like a mount- is a mountainous region. Some people think that there was uh, like an outbreak of malaria at sea level uh, around that time, and maybe Paul went up to the region of Galatia because he caught malaria and was trying to get to a high altitude to get better. And so winds up, you know, in the region of Galatia, hey, what do I do when I'm, you know, on sick leave? Plant a church. Why not? And so as I came to you uh, because of infirmity, but notice he says a couple, couple of really important things here. Verse 9, he says, after you have known God, or rather are known by God. Paul corrects himself. And this is important because he, he says, after, you know, now you know God, or rather God knows you. Nobody ever gets to say, I found Jesus. No, you didn't. Jesus found you, right? Because found is a work. It's an act. And finding Jesus doesn't, isn't how this whole thing works. Because if it's dependent on, oh my gosh, is he going to be able, you know, God is up there. Oh, come on, come on. Hey, you're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. Come on, come on. You can find me. Come on. I'm right. I'm right here. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. You're not going to find Jesus. He's going to find you. So he says, all right, guys, become like me. Notice, and so Paul's going to draw a contrast of character between himself and the Judaizers. He says in verse 17, They zealously court you, but for no good. These guys are all over you, man. They want you on their side, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. This is where legalism always happens, always leads. If I'm a legalist, if I'm, if I'm trying to convince you that you need to do good things to be righteous in the sight of God. The thing I absolutely don't want to have happen is for you to do more good things than I'm doing. Right? Because what does that mean? It means I'm not good enough. So if I'm going to live by works, if I'm going to live by righteousness, then I'm going to keep reminding you of how many things you need to be doing. But I'm also going to make sure that you're just a little worse than I am. Right? I'm always going to make sure you're just, you're not quite there. I'm going to leave you out of just a couple of things. I'm going to exclude you. I'm going to be all over you. Oh, I'll be zealously courting you. Oh, man, I want you. Oh, you got to come on, right? Come on, baby. 
Let's do some works for the Lord. But, uh, wow, bro, you, you really stumbled there, right? Because I need to have a little bit of assurance. If we're getting here based on what we can do, I want a little bit of self-assurance that I'm just a hair better than the rest of you all, right? If this is a race, there are winners and losers. And as long as you are all losers, I stand a chance of being a winner. And that's where a, a, a religion of works always, always, always leads to. It never leads to, like when John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. It never leads to, hey, you guys are growing in righteousness. I am so happy for you. It leads to, yeah, you know, you, no, you're, just, you're not there yet. And so if you are following after someone who is, who is leading you into legalism, you will always be excluded, you will always be left out, and you will never arrive. Because a person who is walking in legalism always has to keep you beneath them. That's how it works. And so Paul says, guys, just think about my heart for you. And the way that I lived with you, I was, he said, I was, you know, I was with you in sickness. And these guys are here with you, and they just want to take advantage of you. They really are just wanting to use you to make themselves feel better. He's going to go on. Last chunk of the night. Uh, probably the longest chunk of the night, but what the heck. We'll get through it. And he says, all right, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, and break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. <clears throat> Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So Paul goes back again to the book of Genesis, and he's going to make an argument that, again, can be a little hard to track with. So, if you can remember in the book of Genesis, Abraham and his wife Sarah are barren. They have never been able to have children. And God comes to Abraham as a 75-year-old man and says, you're going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham's thinking, not really seeing it, but okay, cool. He believes God and it's counted him for righteousness. Ten years go by. And Abraham's thinking, I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> 85, here we go, right? Like, my wife's now 75. I've seen enough women in the world to know that usually these things happen before this. Uh, you know, okay. So maybe we just need a, a plan B, right? Maybe we need to try, maybe we need to just like help God out. So God had made a promise. I'm going to give you a son, all right? Abraham's like, yep, got it. Holding steady. Credit to the man. He held on for 10 years. That's 
probably better than most of us would do if we were 75 and childless. But he says, all right, we need to, we need to help God out. And so Sarah says, I've got this great idea. Why don't you make a baby with my handmaid? And Abraham says, well, baby, if that's how you feel about it, I'm just here to, you know, why not, right? I mean, I just want to make you happy. And if that's your idea, hey, what can I say? Um, happy wife, happy life, which is not really in the Bible, by the way. Um, so Ishmael is born. Ishmael, and Paul says, these are symbolic things. Now, this is the only time in the, in the New Testament the word, it's, it's the Greek word allegory, where we get the word allegory. Um, he says, these things are an allegory. Paul's building an allegory. This is the only time in the New Testament that that word is used. So we don't get the right, as we're looking through Scripture, to turn everything into allegories. Okay, we can, uh, from 1 Corinthians 10, we can look back and say, okay, this is kind of a, a picture of Jesus Christ. This is maybe representing something that God was going to do, and we've seen it played out. But you don't get the right to say, oh, hey, you know, okay, let's just say this equals this. And um, I read a book one time, No Lie, where the author tried to say that Ahab was Barack Obama and Jezebel was Hillary Clinton and Jehu was Donald Trump. And I read through the whole thing and I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever read in my life. But he was, he was convinced. And I was like, no, you don't get, you don't get the right to, to turn the scripture into allegories. Um, so Paul here is doing something specific, all right? So this is Paul drawing a point from the Old Testament. He says, all right, listen. So Abraham and Sarah's servant, Hagar, make a baby, Ishmael. And then God says, that's not what I meant. I told you, you and Sarah are going to have a baby. There's a promise for you and Sarah. And Abraham, and, and so I'm still going to hold on to my promise, even though you trying to add to it by your works. You thought your works could help out my word. And so it didn't. And so what happens? You have, Paul says, basically the works of the flesh. You have the arrival of Ishmael. But you also have the work of the promise of God. And that's Isaac, right? That's the real promised child in Abraham's story. And what happens? Ishmael becomes a wild man. It says, you know, the hand of everybody's going to be against him. His hand is going to be against everybody. Ishmael becomes the father of, by and large, the Arab people. And that prediction about Ishmael's life has largely held true even today. By and large, most of the world doesn't really like the Arab world. Most of the Arab world really doesn't like the rest of the world, right? Everyone's hand is against them and their hand is against everyone else. That, that largely holds true. God told Isaac, in you all the nations, or God told Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And through Isaac, what do we have? We have the arrival of Jesus Christ. We have the arrival of the seed, the promise, the fulfillment the fulfillment of the law, the one who now, by whose death and resurrection, we are now all able to enter into the family of God. And so Paul makes a point. He says, look, if you want to try to add to the works that, if you want to add to the grace of God, if you want to say, hey, Jesus, what Jesus did was great, but now he needs my help, then really all you're doing is the exact same thing that Abraham did with Hagar. And the result you know, you wound up with Ishmael, you wound up with just all the, the struggle and the tension and the conflict that has come from that. Paul says, that's what happens when you try and add to what God has already done. If you take, here's what God has said. God has said, if you believe 
it will be credited to you for righteousness. God has said, the just shall live by faith. Jesus said, I have fulfilled the law and the prophets. Paul said, the law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. Once we're at Christ, we don't need the law anymore. If you say, these are the words of God, but gee, God just needs a little bit of help, you're going to wind up with Ishmael. If you say, I'm going to receive the promise of God, and I may not even fully get it, I may really struggle to believe it sometimes, I may say, this doesn't, man, this doesn't feel like it's going to work, but it's the word of God, and so I'm holding on to it. When do you receive? You end up with Isaac. Isaac's name means laughter. What happens when you walk in grace? There's joy. We're going to get into it next week. Paul's going to talk about the fruits of the Spirit and the fruits of the flesh. If you walk according to my flesh or trying to do things my way, there's a certain result that comes. If you walk according to what is the Spirit of God doing, in the same Spirit that I can receive by the grace of God, there are certain fruits, there are certain ripple effects that are going to come from that. And they're incredible. So, so there we go. If you add to the works of the Lord, you're going to wind up with frustration. You're going to wind up with hurt, bitterness, resentment. Nobody's ever going to live up to the standard, including yourself. And so you always wrestle with either having to lower the standard and deny God his holiness or put on a false front and live a life of hypocrisy. Or you can walk in grace. You can say, I'm going to receive the promise of God. And you can let the full righteousness of God come into your heart and dwell on you. And you can say, and what, you, what that happens, you don't then have to diminish the holiness of God. You don't have to say, well, God isn't, you know, this wasn't a big sin. No, it actually was a big sin. You were coveting something. That was a big sin. And it might have been something stupid. It might have been a little thing but it was still coveting. It's a big sin in the eyes of God. God's holiness is no less. But God's grace is fully sufficient. And so you can say, wow, I sinned. I want to ask the Lord for forgiveness. And he says, yeah, I'll forgive you because I promised you in my word that my grace is sufficient. And so we can do that. So that's the doctrine of grace that Paul's outlining for us, all right? Chapters three and four. Next week, we're going to get into the application of grace. How should it look in our lives? You know, like in, in Romans 5, Paul says, I think it's 5, he says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Hey, now that we've got grace and God will forgive us for our sin, should we just keep doing whatever we want? We'll get there. But uh, the answer is no. But next week, first chapter, verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. So next week, where it's going to be all about walking in freedom because we have the grace of God, not freedom because of what we did. Lord, we are so incredibly thankful for your grace, for the, the free gift that you've offered to us. It cost you so much, and yet you offer it to us for free. And so, Lord, we pray that we would grow in our understanding. God, we want to be overwhelmed by your grace. It truly is amazing. We don't have words enough in our language to describe all that it is. So we pray that you would just broaden our hearts, open our minds, expand our vision to see the depth of who you are. We are so thankful that we can cry out, Daddy, Daddy, Father, we love you. And we pray that you would just continue to pour out your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Give us more and more of your grace. We want to draw closer to you, fellowship with you in your presence. We want to be conformed to your image. 
We just ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. Amen.